You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming along. And uh, I suspect that some of you have been lured by the word fashion in the M Pavilion program. So a special welcome to you. You're my people, my fashion tribe. We're all a fashion tribe. I'm Janice Breen-Burns. I'm a veteran fashion writer and editor and a bit of an old frock editor from way back, a frock warrior from way back. And this is Fashionably Moral, a conversation about a particular kind of fashion. In a moment, I'll introduce four of the most thoughtful, creative and admired fashion designers in Melbourne. But first, let me acknowledge that we're meeting here at Glen Merkitt's marvellous iteration of M Pavilion on the traditional lands of the Yulakut Willum people, part of the Bunurong, one of five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, their elders past and present and future. And I'd also like to add my own personal acknowledgement because I've been working on some amazing stories recently and some joy that a new wave of First Nation artists and designers from clans all over Australia are currently contributing so strongly to the future of a sustainable, ethical and highly creative fashion industry here. So let's start with a bit of context. What's happened to fashion? I'm going to just quickly paint you a picture. Picture the modern polarised fashion industry. And this is why I asked for a stand-up mic, because I'm going to do a bit of gesticulating here. (laughs) Imagine up this end. Imagine this. So we've got a long line. There's a bulge at this end. Imagine up this end are all the high street chains online fast fashion sites and the conglomerates that are stitching up billions of frocks that are so inexpensive that we invented the word disposable for them. Consumers on this end of the fashion spectrum buy frocks in shops that are actually a planet away from where they're made. And they buy them like they buy an ice cream or a cocktail. It's for fun. It's for now, it's for a moment to fit into the fashionable herd and then it's over and they're ready for the next purchase. Now, okay, I'm gesticulating again. Imagine another bulge up this end. Now imagine up this end are all the small independent studios, the couturiers, the fashion artisans, the bespoke and custom ateliers. Consumers up this end of fashion treasure the sensuous and expressive connections that they can make with a garment. They get a kick out of, say, the way a fabric's been curated and cut and draped to move just a certain way as they move. They'll swoon over a particularly finely finished scene or a design that's so unique it speaks volumes about who they are as a person. They love crafts and skills and they often know the craftsman or designer of their clothes or they know of them. They've actually investigated who they are. They love fashion they can put on, forget and know they look marvellous 
or they can tell a wonderful story about it to their like-minded friends. So among consumers on this end are also the lovers of vintage and recycled and upcycled fashion. And there's a lot of meshing and merging between those Italias and vintage and upcycled fashion. So let's go back to the other end of fashion, change hands. We're talking about this end of fashion now. For years, the news behind this end of fashion's glossy, trendy surface was simply awful. It seemed fashion, that end, had evolved into an immoral industry. And we were all tarred, even this end, we were all tarred with the same awful brush. We all heard the horrors, the fallout of faster and faster and cheaper and cheaper fashion production, the water waste, the carbon emissions, the 21 billion tonnes of textiles that's dumped in landfills globally every year, not to mention the cruelty, the slavery and the injustice. More recently, though, to be fair, we've also heard the horrors, the horrible news is slowing down. The news is starting to actually improve. The tanker is turning. Consumers are increasingly demanding to know the stories behind their clothes. That's you you're becoming more and more educated about what you're wearing. You're confidently tossing around terms like sustainability, transparent supply chains and ethical production. And increasingly, they're expecting that the fashion brands they buy will have these principles embedded without them even having to check. And woe betide if they check and they're not embedded. So this end of fashion, in other words, is slowly changing because in a nutshell, it's beginning to emulate this end of fashion. And here we come to the crux of today. Up here, the treasurable values of slowly, carefully crafted clothes have never changed. This is where love is actually skillfully woven and sewn into every garment where the concept of luxury fashion has evolved and matured and the concepts of sustainability, ethical supply and production are naturally embedded. This end of fashion, in other words, and now I'm taking in, I'm embracing our panel, this end of fashion is the future of fashion. Okay, so let me introduce four of its most talented practitioners in Melbourne. Collectively, they are known as fashion by appointment, but first let's meet them one by one. On my far left, your far right, Nevada Duffy designs avant-garde minimalist clothes. She has an obsession for fine, fine construction and a reputation for creating collectible heirloom fashion, stuff you can hand down to your daughter if you like. Sharply tailored jackets with accentuated shoulders and effortless classic duster coats are among her signature pieces and she does them beautifully. She often repurposes vintage fabrics, kilts and even hard yakka, remember those, hard yakka overalls as well as beautiful new textiles to create her bespoke garments. 
Nevada's highly considered collections are handmade in her Fitzroy studio and she describes them as having a focus on utility wear that evokes a quiet glamour. Please welcome Nevada Duffy. Next to Nevada, Julie Goodwin is a classic couturier. In her Albert Park Atelier, she works with the finest fabrics, carefully steaming, easing, stretching to achieve a perfect fit, exquisitely tailoring and detailing clothing of the highest handmade quality that she says brings out the best in her clients. Julie believes passionately in the investment value of a garment that's hand-tailored to perfectly fit a woman's figure and that can be worn for years. She calls these the antidote to fast fashion. Please welcome Julie Goodwin. <laughs> Next to Julie, Cara. Cara Baker was first rigorously technically trained in New Zealand and began as a costume pattern cutter for New Zealand Ballet and Opera Company, believe it or not, in 1975. Before her career evolved in the next 45 years to roles in the US, the UK, Belgium, India and Australia. She was a sales assistant for, an, for American designer labels, a vintage and a, at a vintage fur salon in Chicago. She's been a pattern maker at Bieber and Zandra Rhodes in London. She was the designer and owner of the legendary Sirens brand in the 80s and 90s. She's been a fashion lecturer at RMIT, a designer for Dangerfield and Megan Park and a trend forecaster for Maya. I just picked out a few things from her, her <laughs> CV. It's just because she's old. She's very old. <laughs> she's also, she was also co-owner with Shelley Lassica in the Project Bespoke fashion label, which I'm sure a lot of you remember with great fondness. Since 19... Uh, sorry, 19. No, no, we're into the 2000s now. Since 2009, Cara has been the couturier between Cara Baker Couture, which is run on sustainable business practices, always has been. She uses mostly vintage dead stock fabrics, cottons, silks, wools and linens in exquisitely handmade custom garments that she launches in collections with lovely, elegant cocktail soirees and you really must try to get to one. Please welcome Cara Baker. And finally, on my immediate left, your right, Estelle Michelides started studying fashion design but switched very quickly to the beautiful art of millinery. It's there, she said, she discovered her love and passion for that intersection between fashion and art. For 15 years, Estelle forged a career in millinery both here and in London where she worked with the renowned Catherine Franklin Adams. In 2008, as times were changing, the market for bespoke headwear was collapsing and fast fashion was on the rise, Estelle walked away from millinery and opened up her first fashion boutique in Collingwood. By, by 2012, she had returned to her fashion design roots and there are a lot of people out there who thank God that she did. <laughs> and the wonderful, extraordinary Mickey in the Van label was born. 
And I, I just, just on a personal note, I have to point out now that Gucci is looking very like Mickey in the van at the moment. <laughs> um, I think they should thank you. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, and, 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 of course, Mickey in the van, in two, by 2012, it started to muster its army of passionate devotees for uh, Estelle's uniquely feminine, wearable art. Please welcome Estelle Michelides. Excuse me a moment while I just decamp, relocate. Thanks, Dave. Well, let's get this conversation going. Can I start with you, Cara? Because you're right across this, uh, the whole, whole gamut of issues in relation to this fashionably moral subject. Can, oh, thank you, Dom. Can, can you... I'll take that from you. <laughs> thank you. Can you describe your... Can you describe your customer and how different are they to the, to the customer up this end of fashion? I just, I think it works. Am I on? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, I've always said my uh, clients are um, fashion literate and uh, by that I mean that they, they don't come to me for a makeover, they come to me because they... Um, they connect with my design aesthetic and they have to be very, they're very, very self-confident because, I mean, if I was a client, I'd feel quite daunted about coming to see me because you've, you don't just walk into a shop, you've actually got to go into a private salon. It's a one-on-one -on -one with the designer. And I think that is quite intimidating. So they're obviously confident women. I think I would say they were self-assured and they're individuals. They don't, whether they have the money or not, that's irrelevant, but they don't really aspire to Collins Street luxury brands or global luxury brands. They're, they're looking for something different. Um, that's another, there, another is, aspect sorry, is they're interested in quality. They often know about fabric and they, they value um, beautiful fabrications as well, as well as cut and fit. What's the, what's the uh, relationship? Say, Julie, uh, I'll ask you now. What's the relationship that your clients have with uh, your craft, their clothes, that, that is different to uh, a fast fashion customer, fundamentally? Well, they're, in, they're involved from the, mm. ver, from the very beginning. So it, it, from the first appointment or from the first phone call even. So they're telling me what they're looking for. I'm explaining to them what I can offer and it's very much, a, for want of a better word, a collaborative process. So they're... Um, they're interested in um, in putting a bit more effort in, probably to their to their style and their look, or they're frustrated and they need help. And so um, we're assisting each other in a way mm. to find their. It's a definite personal relationship, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, it's like a well. It's yeah. a, well. I consider that I offer a service. It's it's yeah. like a hairdresser or something like a personal trainer. Yeah, it's but but when a when a fast fashion customer goes out and buys a new frock, it's a completely different contract between them and the frock, isn't it? What about you, Estelle? Your your customer is very different to the usual H and M and Zara customer. But aren't it's they? exactly as you said, it's very personal. I have a personal relationship with each one of my clients, and even if they do purchase online and we do converse via email, everything 
is all the response is by me. So they're getting an email from me and I'm asking them questions about their style. So not only are they purchasing one of my pieces, but they will get tips on how to wear it, how to style it. Mm. And um, for me, my customer, they purchase with purpose and with intent. Um, and as you mentioned earlier in your intro, it's all about telling a story. And for me and my designs and my customer, they want to know that there is a story behind not only the piece that I create, but also the fabric, because I do design my own textiles. So they want to know that there is a story behind that. Um, so yes, mm. it is a personal experience. And Nevada, what about you? Uh, um, Estelle's just talked about purpose and intent. That's that's surely key to your customers as well. What is the purpose? What is the intent? It's different to the H&M customer, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. It's um, I, the same as Estelle. I'm, um, yeah, I think they like the fact that I, that there's part of me in, mm. in the clothing and... They need I, your help, obviously. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And, um, yeah, just the, the fact that they know how much goes into each garment... Mm. So the other thing is that um, I, I think as, as a rule, none of you actually follow trends as such. So you're not, you're not kind of, uh, you're not offering that plug into the, the, the quick turnaround frock, are you? You're not, you're not offering them that um, moment where they're going to have that, that minute of now in amongst their 50 friends who are all wearing the same thing. No, they, they're happy to wait usually. Mm. And usually they keep that garment in their wardrobe for a really long time. Mm. How long? Depends. Could be 20 years. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm go we're going to have a, uh, an audience participation session later and I want everybody to tell me what the oldest thing is in their wardrobe. So have a think. I can say 50 years. <laughs> beat that. See if you can beat that. But um, <laughs> are they older? Are your, are your clients older than... Are we talking about a demographic here where uh, the fast fashion customer is a lot younger and a lot less conscience-driven or... Cara? I would say generally I have had a couple of clients that I got 10 years ago at the start of my business, but they were in their early 20s or barely out of their teens, but they're really the exception for, and the, you find out usually when you talk to them, there's an incredibly stylish grandmother in the background that's taught them about fabric and cut and fit. And they've stayed with me. But I would say it's my clients are generally, um, they've discovered their own style already and my aesthetic co coincides with what they like. So I'm not a dictator. Mm. I think as women get older, they develop whatever your style is, you become more uh, self-assured and... For a lot of, as I've met, already mentioned, they're very interested in the uh, good quality fabrics. And when I look at the mainstream now, sometimes at the mass market level, not fast fashion, not super cheap, but even in mid-level, I'm completely horrified by the fabrics. I think they're just so cheap and nasty. And definitely my clients, that's one of the um, draw cards for what I do. Mm. And, and uh, the... the issues around sustainability, ethical supply and all that sort of stuff are, are just part of your business practice, which is similar to, say, the way fashion would have been produced in the 50s or before, before the um, Parisian kind of um, uh, turnaround on ready-to-wear? 
in the 70s at least, do you think? Who's, um, what, Navarre or Julie, yeah? Well, that, that's kind of the whole point. Yes. It, it's, um, and I think it's, a, we're a product of our generation in many ways. <laughs> um, it's not wasteful. I, that's not the way I was brought up and it's not the way most of my clients were brought up either. It's just, it's, it's wasteful to buy things and not hang on to them and not use them and it's, mm. it's wasteful to not use every skerrick of the expensive fabric that you've bought. You know, it's... Cara, I know, does um, more, even more than I do, uses all her offcuts mm. because it's wasteful and, and, and it's... Because I don't think any of us are eco-warriors. We're all sustainable no. by, by the fact of the, that's just the way we work and that's... It, by it, default, You know, call yeah. us old-fashioned. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Well, just... Can we just stay with the comparison of the markets? Because I'm really interested in in um, how we get the last... Well, last... How we get the bulk of those young people over to your end of the fashion industry. Has anybody got any ideas how you... I mean, obviously, it's an education process, but you... Uh, Curry, you sort of touched on something about, you know, you, you, you reach a certain level of maturity and you know your style, but we're, talk, we are, we're talking about a lot of young women probably who haven't got that... haven't developed that concept yet, have they? I think they're now coming from... Um, they're more coming from con a concern about the environment. That's the driver now for young people rather than being older and maybe re remembering um, when, you, when you didn't ever waste anything. It's more driven by their concerns about the future of the planet. And so if you look at fashion through that lens, you can't buy fast fashion. Though a lot of them still do. So how but do every, everybody does. I mean, yeah. all of our clients do shop a little bit with fast fashion. Uh, so I, we, none of us here can say that none of our clients buy fast fashion because a lot of people mix high and low and do dip into... I mean, we're not, we're not focused on trends. So if you want that piece that is of the moment for the one or two wears, you have your little guilty pleasure of that. <laughs> yes. And our clients, we know our clients all do, do that as well. Yes. And uh, Estelle, tell me, how would you lure someone over to your end of the industry who is, who is um, buying six frocks Try and act cool and try and just get into their headspace. I'm not sure. Look, all I do know is that there has been a significant shift in the industry. Mm. And if we just keep on talking about it and, and keep this dialogue happening, um, there will be a shift with the... The, uh, the Gen Xs and the Gen and the Millennials. What I found in um, recently with London Fashion Week, um, British Vogue and Farfetch created an event. I actually wrote it down because I found it so interesting, and they it, they titled it uh, "Fashion Our Future," and they essentially the premise behind it was if we all just made one pledge, just one one, if we made one difference, the ripple effect would be so vast. And they sold it to the, that demographic, the younger demographic, as just make one pledge. And their titles were, this is just a few that I picked out, um, are you an oversharer? Are you a fixer? Are you, um, are you the B, BFA free human? Um, so if you just, and they had, I think, about nine different titles. And if you just picked one, and if you pledged to follow this, 
then that would make such a massive um, to the industry to or or to their uh, in their culture, the culture of their friends. No, to the industry, friends. to the right. industry. So yeah. it, it was to the. Um, so when you say, to the are customer, you an over, I'm not going to be an oversharer Are you anymore. an oversharer in what the sense, you, what sorry. Would that mani- how the, would that manifest? So the subtitle was, loan your clothing. Right, right, okay. Share your clothing. Um, and then, are you a fixer? Repair your pieces. Right. Don't throw them away. Yeah. Um, so that's what they were suggesting. Perfect. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah fantastic so suggestions. So there is certain, mm. there is um, a real predominant, dialogue in the industry and we just really need to keep it going. Yeah. I, I want to now, I want to skim on to the things that we value as um, consumers up this end of the industry. Um, so what are the design inspirations? What are the crafts? What are the skills? What are the processes that you all use that mass producers of fashion simply can't or they won't or they don't? Nevada. Well, I could say that I use I, – I'm a pattern maker. So a lot of my designs come from creative pattern making yeah. and actually designing while I'm cutting on the stand and draping and working things out that don't it's – it's a luxury to be able to do that compared to something that's very um, – Two-dimensional, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, two-dimensional you know, the way and the, done yeah. on the computer. And yeah. Like I play a lot and experiment. A lot in my studio. Yeah. So I think that has a lot to do with, you know. And I think you become known as somebody who plays a bit and and is a, a true designer in that way where you're experimenting and solving problems as you go along, don't you? You would all, yeah, it's you would all have that reputation. It's the mistakes I make that often become my best things too. Yeah. So it's, Same. it's chance. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Julie? Let's, let's go up the line. <laughs> What are, what are the inspirations? Where, you know, like uh, inspirations for most uh, fast fashion companies are trends, you know, things that are, that are going to sell. What's, what's yours? My inspirations are my women. Right. That, that's it. It's bottom line. I meet them and I make for them. And, and what is it about them? What, is it, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to reach a, a point of flash, ultimate flattery or...? Yes, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, to make them feel comfortable, feel, feel their best selves, you know, it's kind of what we all want. And I, mm. I um, just because I can put things on a body in a certain way, I actually am able to give some women what they've n- never had before. Um, and it's a, a garment that actually flatters them. And, and I think that you know, in mass market, they can't. They can't do that. It's not that they won't. They, it's impossible because when you take measurements for a living, as I do and you do, I you realise that that they only have to differ by a matter of a centimetre either way to change the whole proportion of a, a person's body, and so it's impossible to flatter everyone with a traditionally graded pattern like it just it it doesn't work so if you're able to have things made for you then you will look better and feel better and be more confident and particularly you're known for some incredible tailoring and uh, the what are the techniques that that uh, I'm just I'm, I'm thinking about 
Oh, I don't know, um, stitching and padding yes. and, yeah, yeah. So, and what are all those those techniques? It just it makes it makes something feel like armour, doesn't it? It can, yes. Um, so as just as a tiny measurement can make a big difference, so can so, so women's shoulders. You know, where one's higher than the other. There's extra padding. There's um, there's hand stitching. There's a whole other layer that goes in underneath the the outer garment and and on top of the lining <laughs> that can make a difference to the way a garment sits on the body. And I use that. I, I use steam a lot. I think the difference between what I do and what most tailors do, which is based on men's practices, so is that I've developed from a love from a female form. So it's all about um, curves for me and softness to my tailoring. That's what sets my stuff apart, I believe. It's not flat. It's, it's curvy. It's soft. But also... Um, when you do it properly, it'll kind of stand up on its own and almost look like you in the corner. <laughs> Which just, could be a bit frightening. Pop, pop it there. <laughs> yeah. I love I love the idea that um, a lot of people when they uh, they buy a garment like that that is so carefully produced um, that they have secrets about their own. Uh, they have secrets about that. Not not necessarily, you know, like um, uh, a lot of fashion consumers are very, very um, concerned with logos and, and the outward projection of a particular uh, set of meanings that come with that logo. But when you get something that's actually tailored for yourself, um, you secretly know about the lining. You secretly know about it. the stitching. It's what? a huge part of it. Yes. yes. And um, and that's, again, it's that collaborative thing as well. People come in and I actually did um, something recently for a barrister who um, wanted me to make her court jacket for her. And I put secret, actually secret pieces of embroidery in the lining. And there are regulations around court garments. You're not allowed to do this, that or the other. So it was doubly secret. So that's a, that's a real secret. Yeah. <laughs> she wanted special things in there to make, to give her a sense of power. And that's an, that's a, an overt, if you like, um, example of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, women come in and, you know, and uh, some women come to me and they know that, that for instance, their waist is their best feature best it's the one that they love but some women and and they and so they ask me to highlight it but others come in with no idea that they even have a best feature and it's the knowledge of the form that we have acquired as with our experience actually that helps with that that you can identify it and help them just help them feel better i don't it's not about feeling taller or thinner or any of those things. It's just about feeling more yourself and, and, um, and I think... But that it pe- helps to look taller and thinner and... Oh, sure <laughs> does. It so does. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, Cara or Estelle or Nevada, can you just tease, tease out that? Because that idea of actually knowing that your clothes are made a certain way... Is, is, is fundamental to that contract that you have with your clients, yeah. isn't it? I think it's about um, being the best version of yourself. That's how I view it. Mm. I do a little bit of what Julie does, but mostly I design a collection which is then made to measure. So I don't start from scratch with every client. I, I don't think I've got the patience Julie has to do that. I do it occasionally and I do do it with tailored jackets, but... It tends to be I've got one classic jacket from 2002 which I keep remaking because people still want it and that that can be completely remade depending on the size of the client. So just 
I kind of sit sort of un under Julie with a sort of tweak and I would just concur with her. I can have, I have a lot of very tall and very petite clients because they might all be size 10, but of course, unless you're whatever the model size was that that design business fits on, your, the waistline, for example, which in a certain design might be crucial, isn't going to be in the right place for you and therefore you're never going to look great in that dress, as good as you could. So I'm more tweak. I'm, I, do, I do do work a little bit like Julie. Um, I mean, I do a little of the work Julie does, but mostly I adapt from um, a collection. But you'd be amazed how subtle those tweaks uh, can improve the look of a garment. And what I find, people always say, what's the best thing about your business? Thinking that, you know, you draw all day. Well, you mostly dream up the designs in the middle of the night in a panic. But um, for me, it's the satisfaction when someone's come to try on a garment and it's not anywhere near the right fit or proportion. And then they come to collect the garment and they are quite astounded often by the transformation of looking in the mirror and seeing what a difference it makes and therefore how different it makes them feel. And that for me is actually the biggest thrill of my business is seeing that expression on someone's mm. face. And Estelle, you've got an example here of uh, a tailored jacket. Can you, can I take some of your debris here and, and you just show us unmask it because we're so talking about is techniques. A, this is a perfect example of my work. Um, I recently heard someone uh, say that independent design is design with poetry and splendour and I just had one of those moments where like... Was the, that one of mine? Yes. <laughs> You're and such I had, a liar. <laughs> I wish it was. No, it was. Did I? I oh, think you did good say grief, I'm good. <laughs> I'm but, and I just had one of those moments where the sky opened and I was like, yes, that is me. I design <laughs> with poetry, poetry and, and splendour. Well, this is a pretty so damn good example. So this is a perfect example. example. So I'll just stand up. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I design my own prints and if I don't design them personally, I work with local artists and everything is printed locally. Now, I worked with this local artist and I gave her a brief and I don't want to give, when I do work with an artist, I really don't want to say too much because I really want to leave it up to them and their interpretation. So I gave this artist a brief. She literally picked trinkets and brooches, photographed them individually and then created this print. That's beautiful. And, and the with, passion, with some foliage as well. Foliage as well. Now, the passion, it's a men's tailored blazer, but of course, you know, why can't a female wear a men's tailored blazer? Mm. Um, I collaborated with my cousin, Dennis Raftopoulos Couture, or tailoring. I'll hold that up for you. If you I'll hold that for hold you, that? if you like. And, um, so he's carried on the tailoring business from my uncle. This passion is an original pattern from my uncle's archives from the 1960s. So, and look at the lining. So, and it comes with a vest as well, which is also from one of his original patterns from the 1960s. What's the, what's the uh, we were just quickly talking about that um, earlier, about the idea of, of classic 
archive patterns uh, are becoming more and more important because uh, they transcend trends, don't they? So if you've got something uh, that's from your archive, and I know, Kari, you've got quite an extensive archive, um, uh, you can replicate it continually, adapt it to different people, and it goes on, and it's not, it, it's, it's not uh, anchored in any particular moment in, in fashion history. So tell me about that. Navada, you've... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, well, it goes back to your blocks, which... Right. You know, the patterns that have worked for you in the past seem to keep going forever, really. You sort of adapt them according to different um, ideas that you have for them, but the shapes, mm. they're, they're really valuable. You would never want to lose those shapes. And those, um, those shapes have been proven, haven't they? Because presumably, usually these shapes, these, these archive pieces have come up, they've, they've churned through fashion and come up again. They've cycled around and cycled around over and over. They become your signature. Yeah, in a way. yeah. yeah. So, Kara, you've got you've got some some pieces that are actually like that. I know that there's there's one dress that I saw one I, that I absolutely adore. Uh, I've forgotten. You've got a name for it. Oh, the Talitha. The Talitha dress. dress is one of the most beautiful garments. Uh, is, that's from an archive. And could you also go into? I know that you also have sustainable practice that are, that involves the Talitha dress. So tell me about that. Um, well, just in terms of my archive, uh, I had a business from 84 to 92 and I pulled out a, a swim, I called it the swimsuit dress pattern yesterday, which was from 1984. Sadly, I threw out Melinda, you might have been there maybe. We threw out most, Melinda was my assistant in the 80s for a few years. We threw out masses of patterns, which of course I would just die to have now. Um, but I do, and of course you think you're keeping the key things, but you're only looking at them through that fashion moment. So of course, all the huge shoulders which are back now, I got rid of anyway. Uh, so I do pull out uh, earlier patterns, but with the Talitha dress, it's, well, M Melinda's wearing a similar one called the Virginia dress because Virginia Dowser loves it and she's got a couple. And so I just use ends of bits of fabric. Would you mind standing up and doing a twirl? So give us a twirl. <laughs> so the beautiful, um, the, all the stripes are vintage, but the beautiful floral in the middle is about 20 years old and that was the last little piece I had. So right. whatever I have left, even if it's a half a metre, I make sure I use it at some point. And about a year ago, I was approached by a woman who's won a lot of awards for applique patchwork um, and who works extraordinary. And now anything bigger than an inch square that's too small for me to use goes into a bag and she comes every two or three months. So there is no fabric wasted. <laughs> that is, well, that's the future of fashion, isn't it? And, and the other thing is it's always intrigued me because you, you do actually... Um, can I tell your um, skip diving story? <laughs> uh, maybe you want to tell your skip diving story. When Job Warehouse was uh, throwing out tons and tons and tons of, of incredible vintage fabrics out the window of that incredible Burke Street building and you were there at the oh, bottom uh, of the skip. 
a, a friend of mine called me and whose husband had walked past and said, quick, call any fashion people you know. <laughs> and because it was at the top of Burke Street, Does I everybody just know what ran up the Job road. Warehouse is, yeah? It was and, a um, massive old, uh, been there for decades and decades and decades, a massive old resource for manufacturers, students, everyone. The Australian just, Ballet and yeah. Opera. So I just climbed onto the top of the skip and went ferreting. <laughs> and it's well documented. Um, it's, on, it's on Instagram. Uh, and I did find some great stuff, but it was pretty gruesome. They, everything you could imagine that would get into fabric, including a leaking roof and mould and pigeons and rats and silverfish and rodents. Oh, well, yes, I've said rodents. Please, please um, don't so let that impress you about Cara's so business. Let's, let's just if you're say thinking of becoming a client. The washing machine got a real workout that week. <laughs> I and also, I have used some I of those pieces. Sorry. I loved the idea that there was a... Uh, there was a, a, a fabric which hadn't fared well in sunlight, but you actually uh, you actually ran it as an ombre. So yes, the, it had colour colour discoloration, and I used that in the the dress. It was a one off, and um, I think it was called the on fire dress because it was a burned dark sort of terracotta, and then it went a kind of bright flame, a light orange, and it actually looked like it was on fire. And I used that in the the way I cut the garment. Uh, Estelle, what about you? Do you, uh, what are your, the, the, the obvious sustainable and ethical supply practices that you uh, use in your business? Because um, your, I know your clients are quite um, passionate about that. They are very passionate about it. It really, there are so many levels of sustainability and it really depends on how much of a sustainable wizard you want to be. Um, for me and my designs, aside from the fact that everything is um, manufactured locally, I want my um, Melbourne, I want my city to be self-sustainable. So ensuring that um, I keep manufacturing done locally is one element of sustainability. I want to keep my pieces, I want them to have a long um, shelf life. I want them to stay in, a, in my client's wardrobe forever and to be passed down. Um, so that, they're, the, they're the main focuses of sustainability for me. What about, um, Nevada, you can answer this. The, the, uh, we, we shouldn't beat around the bush here. It's, it's uh, much more expensive to buy either couture or an independent designer, isn't it? Um, you've got to expect to pay the price. Tell me about that culture and how how your clients see that and what what their consumption is like. I think my my customers see that in the fact that they wear that garment so many times that it pays itself off. You know, yeah, price times. per wear. Yeah, exactly. And they really don't generally don't throw them out. They don't see them in op shops or, mm. you know. So yeah. And there's there's also is there there's a continuity if you uh, have a collection like you and Estelle uh, and Cara have have collection. Uh, there's content. Sorry, you yeah, go on. No, that's okay. Continuity. Yeah, it's building their wardrobe as well, yes. and, and adding adding to things that you know, it becomes part of the big picture. So planned obsolescence is not part of the process, right. obviously. <laughs> obviously, um, I, I I want to um, bring the audience in now, as because um, we've got about ten minutes left. 
Um, has anybody got any questions for any of our panel or would anybody like to nominate the oldest piece of clothing they have in their wardrobe? Julia? The oldest piece I have in my wardrobe I think is about 25 years old and it's um, from a time when I was living in London and it's a spray painted dress from when I used to go out clubbing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and a lot of the time, as you were saying, um, obviously I've grown up with the same principles. My mum used to make her own clothes. She made her own wedding dress. And both my mother and my father, I think, were very stylish and always put a lot of attention into their appearance. So I've grown up with that. Mm -hmm. And even though I'll fully admit I've bought things that would be considered fast fashion, I look at the value of things. So I like to hold on to things. And the things that are quite old now, I might rewear them because obviously fashion can be cyclical. And also I want those pieces that I really treasure to go on with to my daughter. Because as mm. you say, when you really love and value something, it's like for me, a lot of my clothes are like a piece of art and they've got a story. And so that's a really beautiful thing to pass on to my daughter. Do we, do we have to... Um uh, do we have to educate people to have that kind of attitude, Julia? It's sort of, it's, it's quite rare among the young particularly, isn't it? I mean, I, it would have been rare in my personal case when I was about 18, I think I would have gone for the cheaper frocklet, you know, yeah. rather than the, the extravagant um, uh, bespoke uh, Mickey in the van piece or something like that. I mean, unfortunately, it's, I think, as well as fashion, it's a, bi a bigger problem because um, f we've got this thing of overconsumption yes. across the board. Um, and I, as I keep saying to everyone, I think we need to turn down the, this whole thing, I call it um, gu guilt fatigue of, you know, this is how, you know, I think we need to have positive stories. So the other thing I think is really important is, especially with the young, there's this whole thing of bulk buying, which I think is awful when they buy loads of things. Fashion and hall. Fashion haul, oh, it makes me feel ill. I really hate that of look at what I bought and they've got tons of things. Is that slowing down? Is I hope changing? so because it, uh, it makes me physically sick. Do you think it is? Sick. I've actually spoken to friends who have got daughters that are 14, 15 and they've become so business savvy that they're mm. renting out their clothes on Instagram. <laughs> so they are... Yeah, and they're probably making more money than what I am. <laughs> but there, so there is a there is certainly a consciousness amongst the younger crew as well. So what what are the what are the techniques? So so renting your clothes, obviously, so you don't have to buy a new frock every time you're going to a club or or every time you've got a special occasion. Uh, using rental agencies. Um, what was that? Every time you're on Instagram. So there's a new hashtag that um, our friend Sally McKinnon has started up, Rewear and Share. Right. So it's, it's against that whole culture of, oh, I'm, I'm on Instagram, therefore I need a new outfit. And what, there's a, there's a movement, or oh, we're trying, <laughs> towards saying, look, I've worn this ten times and I'm wearing it again and I look fabulous. And, and documenting that, showing mm. photos. In fact, a, an old client of mine this week sent me a photo of a dress that I made for her 10 years ago, of her in it for her husband's birthday, and then of her in it that day for her husband's birthday 10 years later. 
Mm. And that's the stuff we need to be encouraging. That, that's amazing. And that's, I think that's something that should be picked up by a lot more of uh, the celebrity Instagram influencers um, to en- encourage a bit more education. But one of the things that I've, uh, I've noticed with uh, um, older clothes is they do t- start to look a bit sad, don't they? So um, they slump a bit. Um, there's there's Not some mine. stretching in the <laughs> ev- all clothes because you steam them so ones. much. <laughs> <laughs> what do what do we what how do we? I'm presuming that you all have these clients that bring pieces back, and tell they're, tell they're me about repairable. them. Tell they're me all about repairable. them. How do you fresh, freshen up relining a garment? Relining, relining, okay. changing buttons, freshening up, mending. I, that yeah. sort of thing, adjusting, altering. Sometimes, if people overwash their clothes, I always encourage people do not wash it ever, if, unless you can help it. Spot clean, air it. I mean, we don't have tobacco-filled rooms anymore, but Christine was always famous for saying she just hung the Chanel jacket out overnight in Paris on the balcony, and no more <laughs> cigarette odor. Um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. You're Where talking about freshening up, uh, oh, mending. Yes. Some fabric um, does die eventually yeah. if it's been over laundered yeah. because the bleach will deteriorate the fabric. And yeah. I've had people, someone brought something back saying, can you turn it into a top because it had torn? And I thought that was just because she'd right. washed it and worn it. It was over a seven or eight year period, but some fabrics just don't last forever. So is that, um, obviously that's one step along the way to... Uh, what we a lot of uh, there's a lot of rhetoric around the circular economy in fashion, and that's one step, isn't it? So, do you do you all practice that? Can you can you remodel? Julie, you mentioned new buttons and new lining, and oh, and look, to a certain degree, you can do all that. Like, yes, new, I I habitu- I do reline a lot of my jackets because the lining mm. doesn't last as long as the the rest of it, and I think the the secret as far as I'm concerned, is, is investing in fabric that will last the distance. It's about the way you construct it in the first place. But um, if, you, if you put on 20 kilos, then there's no remodelling that's going to help you. Right. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> um, or if you lose 20 kilos, there's that as well. It's really difficult. Um, what about, but, but what about shoulders and things like that in tailored pieces? Because, of course, we don't really have uh, trends anymore in fashion, but we do have... Probably decade-long trends. You Absolutely, know, so, yeah, yeah. So you can you can change that. I have yeah. you could take the sleeve out and you, well, you can bring a shoulder in, and there are creative ways to push a shoulder out, but not everyone's up for that. So there are limitations, but I think if you're if you're aspiring and to to have a sustainable wardrobe, then there are ways to make your clothes last longer, and they do include not laundering them as often, mm. dry cleaning or washing, but dry cleaning particularly is really bad for your clothes. Right. And, and people just send them off to the dry cleaner to freshen them up, which is ridiculous. You know, it's not freshening, it's, dr- it's killing your clothes. You know, a little bit of steam in a damp cloth... And okay. you can fix virtually anything or you airing, go, as you, you guys should say. all hold classes on how to maintain your clothes. Yeah, we I should, think. absolutely. <laughs> how to darn. Yeah. You know, we, so we start yeah. selling darning mushrooms again. That would be nice. Yeah. I've got a, oh yeah, I've got a, darning <laughs> a darning mushroom. Remember those? Um, what else? There's, there's, there's other techniques. De- Navadi, you're oh, dying was, to tell me. No, I was also <laughs> going to say that it's also the idea of... Um, really considering what you're going to buy and putting your thought into something that you really love 
um, as opposed to some buying ten things that are okay yeah. and you want to get rid of. So, what, so, so give me a a ballpark figure. Say I've I've got the option of buying uh, maybe t- uh, ten different Zara frocks over a year of about $100 each. That's $1,000. Will I buy one of yours? Two. I mean, it's Two. Not, we're not okay, that expensive yeah. when you think right. about it. Yeah. And you also take into consideration what the process as well, which is what we spoke about earlier. It's not unusual for me to re do a pattern two or three times. Once I've sampled it, if it's not right, I go back to my pattern maker, redo the pattern, resample it, and it can go, I can go back again for the third time. So it's, as we said, it's education. We really need to educate the public and let them know that, and you're right, Nevada, like one of my pieces is $500, which I don't think is a great deal, knowing that I have possibly repatterned that two or three times. I have spent hours with a graphic designer creating the fabric, the print, um, so, yes, it's all about education. And there's a level of cool uh, in your brand as well, isn't I there? I'd like to think um, there is. Well, I, I think, I think uh, am I correct in saying that you're kind of trendless? You're more about, as you say, wearable art, uh, a unique perspective on femininity yeah. and expression. That Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm constantly reinforcing that sense of personal empowerment and I know that it's such a cliche word to be self-empowered but it's so true it's everything is on your terms you say how it should be what I'm going to wear everything is on your terms and you Mm. follow your intuition be guided by that Mm. Um, trends I just they come and go and they're just it's superficial there's Mm. nothing profound or deep I think, I think uh, fashion itself is actually jettisoning the concept of trends naturally. It's, it's evolving into an almost trendless the, landscape, isn't it? And, and very much so. And, the, and fast fashion is catching on as well. Mm. So they're just, um, they're latching onto this movement of let's make it about the self. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, well, you know what? That's what we've been doing for our entire career. And, yeah. you know, it is about the self. So there is certainly a movement with fast fashion. They know. They're very aware of it. Yeah. But, um, sorry, Cara, you go ahead. Well, we're talking about value of shopping in this way. Yes, please. A one-off. You don't get a one-off in Paris unless you're paying thirty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 a garment. So... One-offs? Yes. <laughs> Nevada's some one-offs, limited production, limited production. And uh, probably almost 50% of each new collection, it's that garment on the rack. There's only one in that fabric. I'll repeat it. But you have the only one in that particular fabric that exists. So that's very attractive. I have clients who could shop anywhere, spend in any amount of money that you could imagine that clothes could cost, but they don't want to go and buy off a rack. They purposefully choose to support local design and to express their individual individuality through a really unique garment. And for those women who really the world is their oyster in terms of being extremely highly paid, I'm very, uh, very appreciative of their support. Mm. So the cost is, is actually 
part of making it sustainable, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. You spend a lot of money on something. Yeah. yeah. I, I had, I have, this is my, one of my favourite overcoat stories, very short. There's a lady who um, decided she had met me and decided she wanted an overcoat after the birth of her, her first child, brought her husband to see me. They both decided on this overcoat. I quoted it and they both fell over. But they came back to... Uh, Can they you wa- say how much it was? It was $5,000. $5,000. So it's a lot of money. So they wanted to come back and understand where the money was going. So they came back. I showed them the process. I showed them all the bits. They could not hand over the deposit fast enough at that stage. They had gone from going, oh, my God, we've just had a baby, that's ridiculous, to, okay, so I'm actually going to give this coat to my daughter who I've just given birth to. And that's, so how sustainable is that? And I know that that coat will actually still look amazing by the time her daughter is old enough to wear it. And trendless, timeless. And it's a classic. words, yeah. Yeah, that's it. So that's... If you pay a lot for things, then of course you're not going to throw them out. Of course you're not. You're going to mm. look after them. You are going to mend them, get them relined, do all those things. But if you've only paid $10 for it, you don't feel like you mm. need to. Mm. Uh, we've got time for one more. Here we go. We've got... Um, I'll go with this lady here first, if that's all right, because I saw her hand first. And then... Um, Phoebe. <laughs> Phoebe, is it? And then Kyra. We've got about three minutes. <laughs> Thanks very much for everything. You're on my timer. Okay. <laughs> um, thanks very much. It's been fascinating. I adore fashion. I've got a few stories to tell, but I promise not to. But what I wanted to ask you, I went to a lecture the other night um, run by Laneway Learning in regard to a woman who was doing her doctorate um, in regard to vegan fashion, in regard to fabric that was made not from, you know, leather or um, uh, wool or cotton. And I was wondering if any of you were aware of that and whether it was of interest to you for the future for your fashion design. Uh, Julie, you... It's plastic. (laughs) It's plastic. Okay. No, it's made from kelp. It's made from oh, I love corn. it, love it's it, love it, love it. It's made from cactus. It's if it's available, from... I'll use it. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah. Well, it's around the world. I yeah, mean, yeah. She's researched it globally, mm-hmm. and there are a number of fashion designers now, Boss, etc., who are deciding that there is a public who are interested. Absolutely. In, yeah, in in, in um, this possibility of um, because of you know global warming, let's look at Bring how we on. can produce fabric. Um, in a not, you know, sustainable way. So I was fascinated by it and I just wondered if any of you were I, aware of it. I think that's the future. You're absolutely right. You've hit the nail on the head. There's all those kinds of um, technologies are becoming part of the conversation now. Not only part of the conversation, but there are brands that are taking up their their um, first wave of, of fabrics. And I think uh, Catherine Will's brand, uh, Sans Beast, mm. Is an accessories brand which is totally vegan, so no leather. Yeah, toads as yeah. well. Right. Mm. Yeah. So they're using so, the skins yeah, of toads. Great point. Yeah. Great, great. Uh, thank you for that. And we've got uh, another. Hi, Phoebe. How are you? And you go to Little Poppet. <laughs> uh, I just wondered how you approach working with the media, given that you take such a slow approach to fashion. And what do you think is going to be the most um, the way that's going to influence people over from uh, consu- mass consuming 
fast fashion to what you guys do? Great question. That's why we formed this group, to try and get some publicity. The group is called Fashion by Appointment. And um, you can search it online, can't you? So, really, yeah. It is all about education. That's a great question, Phoebe. I don't know how you educate that that part of the market, really, just uh, in any other way, just by doing what you do beautifully, and they all do. I mean, we're all on an individual crusade, but that's why we decided to create this group, because we felt that collectively we'd have more power. Um, And so, I think if we can just keep designing with honesty and integrity... And if we can just have events like this where we're sharing our, um, our philosophy, then I think that we, well, we hope that we're doing the right thing and that we are uh, spreading the, the good word. Mm. All right, well said. And one more question, Cara. Hi. Hi, Dan. Hi. Um, I've I got so many friends here. I've really <laughs> loved. Hi, everybody. I think I'm wearing my oldest thing. Oh, so, how old is it? Uh, I don't know, but you probably would. Um, it was designed by Giorgio Armani prior to the House of Armani. So, prior to the House of Armani. So yeah. we're talking 70s. Uh, see, you're going to know it. James, you might know. Yeah, would it be the 70s? I thought like, it was even earlier. I thought it was the late 60s. But okay. Where did you get hold of it? I got it in London. Shag um, or somewhere? No. It, yeah. I actually don't know, but I think it was it was in London. Oh well, that's yeah. good. I'm 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 proud of you. Thank you. I'm proud of all you people. Oh, and Hold I on modified it as well. Good. It was a long gown and a cape, and then my bunny rabbit got to it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> as bunny rabbits do, in this modern fashion world. Well, thank you very much. I want you to thank Nevada Duffy, Julie Goodwin, Cara Baker, SL Michelides, collectively known as Fashion by Appointment. What an incredible discussion and thank you for your contributions as well. Hope you enjoyed it and have a great afternoon. Actually, sorry, before we all go, oh. we, all, we, we, Fashion by Appointment, would like to thank Janice. Oh, gosh. We just, just a bunch of flowers just to say oh. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Janice. I feel very privileged. Thank you very much. These are gorgeous. Okay, have a great afternoon. Thank you, everyone. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.